In today's episode, we shift our focus from the usual Kevin stories to delve into a distinctive individual who will be named. Before we get to the subject matter, I want to underscore that our approach to content selection for the podcast acknowledges that portraying only the lighter side of Kevins in the military is a fraction of the experience. Not every Kevin that we come across is going to lead to humorous anecdotes. Sometimes we will push our moral and ethical boundaries when meeting some Kevins, and we will need to approach situations with a level of critical thinking. In this episode, we explore the grave story of Private Lindy England, a former US Army Reserve soldier who was central to the Abu Ghraib prison scandal during the Iraq War. Amid disturbing photographs and unsettling actions, we will navigate England's journey and accountability within the complicated chain of command. Listener discretion is advised due to the distressing content involving torture and abuse in a military prison. So the subject of today's episode is Private Lindy England. She's a former United States Army Reserve soldier who served in the Iraq War as a member of the 372nd Military Police Company. Now I'm sure that many of you that know a little bit about the Iraq War, especially those who served in the era of 2003 to 2008, will recognise the name, even if it hasn't pulled a strong connection in your brain as yet. During the research for this episode, I found it very hard to establish facts about her early career, and to that end, one would consider that her early career was likely to be exceptionally unremarkable, like that of many soldiers. Born in Ashland, Kentucky, an area in the southern region of the United States, England moved with her family to Fort Ashby, West Virginia, when she was two years old. She was raised by her mother, Terry England, and her father, Kenneth England Jr., who was a railway worker who worked at a railway station in Cumberland, Maryland. She aspired to be a storm chaser, and as a young child, she was diagnosed with selective mutism, a form of anxiety disorder. However, this did not seem to form any notable events in her life that can be found on the record. There is no documented history of bullying or academic issues that I have been able to easily find any reference to. In an interview, England once said her mother hit her so hard with a table tennis bat that it broke, but she considers that normal for her upbringing. I will give a following quote from England. I mean, yeah, we were brought up right. If we were out of line, we got spanked. We got privileges taken away. We had to do chores, dishes, and mow the grass. In 1999, while attending the Frankfort High School near Short Gap, West Virginia, England decided to join the United States Army Reserve. To look at her time in high school, it seems fairly unremarkable, with even England herself saying, I was friends with everyone. You get to the teenager thing, and you're starting to get into your little groups and stuff. I was friends with everybody. Each group. Goths. Alternative. I had friends in every group. A former teacher of England's at Frankfort High School said there was only one word to describe her presence in his classroom. Invisible. It was at this time she would also work in a local convenience store and marry one of her co-workers in 2002. A marriage that would later end in divorce. However, this part of her timeline is hard to pin down exact dates. I do not believe they are relevant to the story to come. I'm giving some background on the person that she was to become. After graduating high school in 2001, England worked at a job in a chicken processing factory in Moorfield, West Virginia, until her deployment to Iraq in 2003. She worked in spray down and evisceration, which is where the chickens have the blood drained, organs removed, and then they are de-feathered before being passed on to marination, where the chickens were seasoned before going into further processing. It paid $9 an hour with an extra 50 cents for marination. 
and after three months she was promoted to the role of trainer. She stated she liked the work and she was good at it. However, during her time there she noticed that other employees would sometimes breach simple rules of hygiene and cleanliness by placing animals back into the processing equipment after they would fall onto the floor of the factory. After reporting these unhygienic practices to the supervisors, they made what seemed to be empty promises to correct the actions. However, England says nothing ever seemed to change, leading to her resignation from the role. She went on the record to state, Whistle blowing at a chicken factory does not, of course, contradict the basic principles of chicken processing in the way that whistle blowing in the army might conflict with the training that precedes it. In a war, you don't rat on your buddies. There are only seven of us charged, but believe me, there are a lot more behind the pitches, but we didn't rat anybody out. Repeatedly raised, a lingering inquiry remains with definitive answers. Did her supervisor's response significantly shape her subsequent choices upon enlisting in the military? Specifically, could the absence of intervention by her superiors at the chicken factory have led to her believe that reporting any misconduct by a peer was futile and a mere squandering of her efforts? However, a lot of this would be of small consequence to her later life after England's infamous deployment to Iraq in 2003. At first, her unit was stationed in Kuwait, then eventually moved to Al-Hilla, which is around 100 kilometers south of Baghdad. However, in the autumn of 2003, her unit would be selected for duty at the now infamous Abu Ghraib prison camp, located in the town of Abu Ghraib, 32 kilometers to the west of Baghdad. In the west, Abu Ghraib was known for essentially only two things. The Abu Ghraib Infant Formula Factory, which Western intelligence agencies oftentimes had claimed to be a biological weapons production facility in many briefings and reports. This is potentially due to the fact that during the 1980s, the plant had been heavily camouflaged during the Iraq-Iran War. They had bombed the plant multiple times during the Gulf War and again in the Iraq War, with the United States Central Intelligence Agency ultimately determining the plant was never a weapons facility. The only other thing of note was that the Abu Ghraib prison was located in this town. It was a known place where Saddam Hussein used to send political dissidents and subject them to torture and execution in order to maintain his power. Now for some context on the prison, it was built in the 1950s by Western contractors and by the time of 2001 it was expanded and adjusted to somewhere in the region of 15,000 prisoners. However, given the owners at the time, it has been documented the conditions of this prison were poor, to put it in the mildest way. By 2002, Saddam's government had plans to add six new blocks to the prison, to bring the capacity up to 20,000 inmates. However, by the start of the Iraq War, he gave amnesty to most prisoners in Iraq, so the prisons could be mostly emptied of small-time criminals and allow the majority of resources to be diverted to defending the nation. By the time coalition forces started to secure the country and consolidate infrastructure, it was found the prison had mostly been looted and vandalised, as well as many documents for the prison destroyed, including prisoner and criminal records regarding the inmates that had formerly been housed there. This would mean that in future years, tracking down and identifying violent offenders that had previously been housed in the prison would be a significant issue, due to the lack of documentation remaining intact from prior to the invasion. As of 2023, two known mass graves related to the Abu Ghraib prison, and these are for the time of Saddam's reign. These are the Khandari grave, which is just west of Baghdad, which holds the bodies of at least 15 victims, and the Al-Zahidi mass grave containing the bodies of nearly a thousand political prisoners. The mass grave is unique to many mass graves worldwide in the fact that it is more of a cemetery and was not a secret. The Al-Zahidi mass grave had bodies arriving in lots of approximately 10 to 15 and they were buried by local villagers. An execution on 10th of December 1999 in Abu Ghraib claimed the lives of 101 people in one day. On the 9th of March 2000, 58 prisoners were killed at a time. These bodies were taken to Al-Zahidi and buried, with the last body buried there being grave number 993. 
Now, although the history is not directly related to today's story, it is being given so that we have some context to the facility in which England would be stationed. This should hopefully also give some context to the mental trauma that would be experienced by prisoners being taken to the facility. Even if that treatment, like, even if they were only being taken there, you know, through other circumstances, most Iraqis knew what happened in Abu Ghraib. Um, so, at the time of the use by coalition forces, it had a significant psychological impact on Iraqi citizens. It is at this point in the pod I would like to take a moment to once again remind listeners that the pod is going to get darker from here. As such, I would like to once again remind you, you do not have to keep listening. I understand some listeners may have served at this time, and they may not wish to bring certain feelings or emotions back from the front of their minds. As such, I wish you all the best in the remainder of your day, and I hope you have a good one. Please, tune in for our next episode. Okay, now that we're back. England mobilised with her unit in March 2003 to become a prison guard at Abu Ghraib. At Abu Ghraib, the coalition authorities detained three primary categories of prisoners, each reflecting a different aspect of the conflict's complexity. On the first hand, you had common criminals. These were individuals with a history of typical criminal behaviour. Among them were violent offenders, murderers and other lawbreakers who were apprehended by coalition forces or reported by civilians following their release from early incarcerations. This category encapsulated a spectrum of criminal activity commonly seen in society. On the second hand, you had suspected insurgents. Another subset consisted of individuals suspected of participating in insurgent activities primarily directed at the occupying forces. These detainees were not recognised as members of foreign military forces, but rather partisans or insurgents who actively opposed the coalition presence. Their capture shed light on the broader challenges of managing unrest and insurgency during wartime. And finally, you had insurgent leaders and former military figures. This category included leaders of insurgent groups and individuals who formerly held positions within the military. These figures had transitioned into orchestrating and commanding militia groups and insurgent forces. Their detention highlighted the efforts to curtail the organisation and influence of those directing opposition to the coalition. These distinct prisoner groups underscored the multifaceted nature of the conflict in Iraq and the diverse motivations and backgrounds of those detained at Abu Ghraib. Most prisoners at the time of England's tenure were housed in a tent city in the compound of Abu Ghraib. However, some of these were held in cell blocks, including the soon-to-be infamous blocks 1A and 1B. The overall responsibility for the prison fell to the 800th Military Police Brigade, which at the time was under the command of Brigadier General Janis Karpinski, who did not have any prior experience running prisons, and as an Army Reserve officer, held less experience than some of her colleagues in similar positions during the war. I'd like to take a moment here to point out that General Kapinski was later demoted to Colonel by authorisation of President George W. Bush and that officially this demotion was not due to activities related to the actions undertaken by his subordinates at Abu Ghraib Prison. I would, however, like to read a quote in its entirety from General Kapinski, which was aired on Dateline on the 8th of March 2006. You have to go back to the memorandum that was authored by our now Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez and John Yu from out in California, who was with the current administration at the time. And they did a memorandum, authorising departures from the Geneva Conventions. The memorandum, which was discussed at length with the Secretary of Defence and the Vice President, according to sworn statements by people who were there when those conversations took place, that authorised the initial departure from the Geneva Convention. And yes... There was a memorandum that was posted at Abu Ghraib prison, and I only became aware of after I heard this ongoing investigation out at Abu Ghraib, and it was signed by the Secretary of Defence. 
The signature on the memorandum was over the signature block of the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, and the ink that was used to sign this appeared to be the same ink used for this handwritten note in the margin. Make sure this happens. And it was a list of interrogation techniques that were approved, so he obviously had knowledge of those techniques. When the Secretary of Defense, General Jeffrey Miller, General Ricardo Sanchez, and General Antonio Tacuba, Tacuba, my apologies, testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee, they were very careful to say in response to a question about the photographs that they knew nothing about the photographs. However, nobody on the Senate Armed Services Committee asked them, did you know anything about the actions depicted in those photographs? Because they would have had to give a truthful answer. And the answer would have been yes, in fact, that they authorised the actions depicted in those photographs. The Secretary of Defence authorised it in conversations with General Miller, his Undersecretary for Intelligence, not only authorised those actions, but was staying on top of the progress of those actions and those activities. When questioned about the findings made in reports, namely a report now referred to as the Taguba Report, about the contact of soldiers at the prison under her command, and the overall state of the prison and the way in which its operations were conducted, General, Ka General Kapinski only said, When they do an investigation with that kind of potential, the rules are very clear. You have to identify an impartial person to do the investigation. And General Taguba did not serve one day in Iraq. He spent his deployment time in the safety of Kuwait. And he was, as it came out afterwards, a good friend of General Sanchez. So if General Sanchez gave the investigating officer specific instructions on what he wanted to see in the conclusions, General Taguba was able and determined to provide and conclude what General Sanchez wanted to see. And he did exactly that. The findings in the report have been largely discredited because he was not an impartial party and because so much more information has come out. General Taguba was not charged with discovering what caused the photographs. General Taguba's instructions were to investigate the 800th Military Police Brigade and discover what was wrong with General Kapinski. Moving back to the topic of discussion, we can now move forward on the structure of the setup. So at the top of all this was the 800th Military Police Brigade. And below this was the 320th Military Police Battalion. And England's unit was the 372nd Military Police Company. When England's unit arrived at the prison, the situation would be described by General Kapinski as one of the units being understaffed, overwhelmed and harried. Subsequent testimonies from England and fellow soldiers shed light on the prison's grim practices, centering on forms of torture. These techniques included dehumanising acts like forcing detainees into nudity, compelling them to wear female undergarments and humiliatingly making them crawl on the floor, occasionally while under restraint. Shockingly, these tactics were purportedly presented as legitimate interrogation methods in use within the prison at the time. Soldiers like England were allegedly instructed that such treatment had garnered approval from intelligence officers. This approval, they were told, was a strategic approach aimed at breaking down prisoners' resistance and coercing them into sharing information desired by the intelligence community. However, as the situation unfolded, a contentious narrative emerged. Some argued, in a potentially obfuscating manner, that the sections of the prison where England and her unit were stationed did not fall directly under the jurisdiction of General Kapinski, the commander of the 800th Military Police Brigade. That instead, they contended that these areas were under the control of military intelligence, suggesting a complex web of authority and responsibility that contributed to the confusion surrounding the events and practices at the prison. 
So, given this kind of information, one can easily see how the situation that Private England and her colleagues have found themselves in as reservists with less experience than some of their full-time colleagues. It would have been very confronting and likely different to anything they had ever experienced. From my personal perspective as a former soldier, the absence of a clearly defined chain of command can readily cause misunderstandings in issuing of orders and directives. However, and I can't stress this enough, Regardless of organisational ambiguity, none of the activities transpiring within the prison are, in my view, acceptable to any conscientious soldier. Now, I would reflect on my training as a regular member of the Australian Army, not the US Army, that I am of the belief that such actions, had I encountered them, would have been unequivocally merited in immediate reporting. But it's noteworthy, however, that my training in handling prisoners and detainees, in basic training, mind you, occurred post the Abu Ghraib incidents, and as such, I lack insight into whether the training I received might have been influenced by the events that unfolded within the prison. Now, it was during this phase of her Iraq deployment that Private England entered into a relationship with fellow soldier and military police specialist Charles Grainer. Notably, during Grainer's tour of Iraq in November 2003, prior to the revelations surrounding the Abu Ghraib events, he garnered commendation for his actions as an MP during the conflict. Some have speculated that due to his compelling charisma and leadership qualities, England gravitated towards Grainer as a safeguard and paternal figure. Subsequently, as the legal proceedings unfolded, it became evident that England's connection with Grainer and his background as a former prison officer in the United States contributed to her involvement in the mistreatment and abuse of detainees. When questioned about a photograph depicting England holding a leash fastened around a detainee's neck, she asserted that specialist Grainer had placed a strap around the detainee's neck before handing it to her. In England's own words, I assumed it was okay because he had a background as a corrections officer. Subsequently, in England's defence, it was revealed that Grainer frequently took explicit photographs of her, and on occasion he would involve another soldier to capture intimate moments between Grainer and England. It has been noted that during her tenure in the prison, England experienced feelings of humiliation and exploitation due to these actions. Nevertheless, shifting the focus back to the core narrative, it is important to note that we have yet to delve into the actual events that transpired. When England initially arrived at Abu Ghraib, her designated role centred on performing administrative tasks and overseeing the facility's operations. Reports often indicated that her presence in the cell blocks was frequently linked to her visits with Grainer, a person for whom she harboured a deep affection. During this period, England also became aware that many high-ranking individuals within the prison, including personnel ranked as high as Staff Sergeant, were not only cognizant of but also dismissive of the inhumane treatment being inflicted upon the detainees. During the course of the trials, a particular incident from England's tenure came under scrutiny. It involved a soldier who faced trouble due to an incident with a female prisoner. England's description of the event was rather explicit. Her statement was, his dick had some contact, meaning with that prisoner. Although the precise nature of this contact was not explicitly detailed in the article, however, the implication was that it leaned towards a sexual contact. Around this time, England frequently socialised with Grainer and another soldier, specialist Megan Amble. During these interactions, alcohol consumption was common, as indicated by the following quote. Raw drink. They were selling it cheap. We would get like a fifth of whiskey. Ten bucks. It was like, get the fuck out of here. I'll tell you what, you could not drink it straight. So what we would do is buy grape soda and mix it in. And after one cup, you'd be like, it was not regular whiskey, I tell you. Crazy. And it would be stated by England after the trial. They said in the trial, 
that authority figures really intimidate me. I always aim to please. They said that one of the reasons Grainer easily intimidated me was because I saw him as an authority figure, so I was really compliant. It should also be noted that England was not the only person in a relationship with Grainer. It would later come out that Amble and Grainer had also been in a relationship at this time. The two would later wed, despite England carrying Grainer's child as a result of their relationship in Iraq. Going back to the prison, during her time there, a series of now infamous photos were taken of the soldiers, as well as many hostages. I will now describe these photographs to you. It is at this point in the pod I would like to take a moment to once again remind listeners that the pod is going to get darker from here. As such, I would like to once again remind you, you do not have to keep listening. I understand some listeners may have served at this time, and they may not wish to bring certain feelings or emotions back from the front of their minds. As such, I wish you all the best in the remainder of your day, and I hope you have a good one. Please, tune in for our next episode. So, uh, this is this is a part that uh, I really wasn't looking forward to doing. So, the first photograph I'd like to describe is a picture of England forcing the inmate, known to the guards as Gus, to crawl in, bark like a dog, whilst being held by a leash and lying naked on the floor of the prison. The only person pictured in this photo is England herself, who is wearing uniform camouflage pants, as well as a brown undershirt and combat boots. There does not appear to be any weapon in this photograph, nor any coercion depicted. However, we cannot see what is happening off the screen, or what has happened in the moments before this photograph was taken. The second photograph I would like to discuss shows a number of men standing in a hallway naked with their penises exposed. The caption to this image says that these men were being forced to masturbate in front of England as well as other guards. In this photograph, England is pointing at the penis of one of the prisoners whilst giving a thumbs up with both hands and smoking a cigarette whilst smiling. The last photo I'd like to discuss shows what appears to be seven naked prisoners forming a human pyramid whilst England and Graynar pose in the background of the photograph and give a thumbs up while smiling to the camera. These photographs are available to view on England's Wikipedia page if you so desire. On March 18th, 2004, England was taken into custody at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where a United States Federal Military Prison housed her. It was during this period that her court-martial proceedings were scheduled for September 2005. The charges brought against her included conspiracy to mistreat prisoners and assault consummated by battery. In the following year, on April 30th, 2005, England entered a guilty plea for the charges levelled against her. These charges encompassed four counts of maltreating prisoners, two counts of conspiracy, and one count of dereliction of duty. As a result of her admission of guilt, the prosecution decided to drop charges related to indecent acts and failure to obey lawful orders. The strategic move was aimed at reducing the potential prison sentence from a maximum of 16 years to 11 years. However, a twist occurred in May 2005 when military judge Colonel James Pohl declared a mistrial. This decision was grounded in the fact that England's guilty plea to conspiring with Grainer to mistreat detainees became problematic due to Grainer's testimony. Grainer had asserted that he believed his actions, such as placing a tether around a naked detainee's neck and having England pose for a photograph with him, were a legitimate form of documenting, of documenting authorised use of force. This testimony ultimately led to Grainer's own conviction, resulting in a 10-year prison sentence for his role in the Abu Ghraib events. As a result, England found herself in the position of undergoing a retrial, sorry, a retrial for the charges brought against her. This retrial took place on September 26, 2005. 
During the course of this trial, England was found guilty of one count of conspiracy, four counts of maltreating detainees, and one count of committing an indecent act. The panel of judges, however, acquitted her of a second count of conspiracy. Following a brief adjournment, the final verdict was reached on September 27, 2005. At this point, England was handed a three-year prison sentence and received a dishonourable discharge from the United States Army Reserve. Over the years since these events unfolded, numerous media reports have indicated the existence of additional photographs connected to the trial and prosecution of the incidents that transpired at Abu Ghraib prison. Although the precise content of these photographs remains a subject of speculation, they have not been released to the public. They have only been seen in closed military trials and by members of Congress who are investigating the actions of the soldiers at Abu Ghraib. Notably, England herself has commented on these unreleased photographs in a March 2008 interview. She shared the following regarding these photographs that had not been made public. You see dogs biting the prisoners. Or you see bite marks from the dogs. You can see MPs holding down a prisoner so a medic can give him a shot. Starting from Monday, September 26, 2005, England commenced her period of incarceration, being remanded into the Naval Consolidated Brig at Miramar, located in San Diego, California. She served a total of 521 days in prison for her involvement in the events, and her release took place on Thursday, March 1, 2007. Following the completion of her prison sentence, England returned to her hometown of Fort Ashby, West Virginia. There she embarked on the process of reintegrating herself into the community and focusing on raising her son. Remarkably shortly after leaving prison, on July 9, 2007, England was appointed to the Volunteer Recreation Board in Kaiser, West Virginia. Alongside her community involvement, she has authored a book titled Tortured, Lindy England, Abu Ghraib and the Photographs that Shocked the World. In subsequent interviews conducted after her release, England shared her thoughts about the media's exposure of the photographs and expressed her perspective on the overall handling of the entire incident. As we move to the conclusion of this episode, let's reflect on two significant quotes from England. <clears throat> if the media hadn't exposed the pictures to that extent, then thousands of lives would have been saved. Yeah, I took the photos, but I didn't make it worldwide. And the second quote. There, meaning the Iraqis, lives are better. They got the better end of the deal. They weren't innocent. They're trying to kill us, and you want me to apologise to them? It's like saying sorry to the enemy. And so, we draw the curtains on this podcast, leaving you with the thought that the Kevin's life presents us with aren't all characterised by incompetence, humour, malicious compliance or mere cluelessness that relegates them to the corner. Every so often you might cross paths with a Kevin or a collection of Kevins who tread the path of wrongdoing, immorality or unethical behaviour. As we navigate encounters with various Kevins throughout our journeys, remember that sometimes mirth accompanies their presence, while at other times valuable lessons await, and on occasion the call for corrective action becomes apparent. Just as life dishes out its array of Kevins, we must adapt our responses, sometimes with a chuckle, sometimes with enlightenment, and on occasion, with a firm hand of guidance or enforcement. Thank you all for listening, and I think now we need to have another good funny episode next, so please, send your stories into the pod. Our email addresses to send stories is in the pod description, as well as all the sources for this episode. Thank you.